Luke chapter 9. Up until this point, if you've been with us as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, we have seen that Jesus has been preaching the Gospel throughout the region of Galilee. And as he's preaching the Gospel, he's exercising the authority and the power that he has being God uh, over demons and over disease. And here now what we're seeing in our text today is that Jesus calls and commissions his disciples to join him in his work. Certainly he's called them to be disciples, but now today we're going to see he calls them to himself and he commissions them to a work. And the big idea that we're going to see here is that not only is Jesus calling and commissioning upon the disciples in our text, but we also have received a calling and a commissioning from the Lord. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, today. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, then he, Jesus, called his 12 disciples together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. I'm always reminded when we talk about uh, a calling and a commissioning, that the, the work that we are called to do, I'm always reminded of a, of a story that I've told several times here, and you've probably heard me tell it about a guy named Lawn Chair Larry. And I'll just give you the, 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 the shorthand version. This is the guy, true story, who bought a bunch of used weather balloons um, at an Army-Navy surplus store and filled them up with helium and tied them to a, to a lawn chair. Um, his thought was that he would just go for a ride around his neighborhood. So he took a peanut butter jelly sandwich and a six-pack of beer, and he took a, a BB gun, and he thought, I'll just go cruise around my neighborhood, and then when I get tired of it, I'll shoot out a couple of balloons and I'll come down. He hadn't counted on the fact that he was going to rocket up 20,000 feet up into the air, which he did. And so he actually shut down air traffic uh, all across the country because he was in L.A. He lived in San Pedro, launched from San Pedro, and promptly he's in the air traffic pattern. As a matter of fact, first report that came in was a commercial airline pilot who passed him at 20,000 feet. They say, you're not going to believe this. I'm not, I'm not drunk or anything, but there is a guy on a lawn chair up here at 20,000 feet. So ultimately, he was too afraid to shoot down any balloons, but he, but, uh, he the, you know, the Helium dissipated. He eventually landed in Long Beach, and they unceremoniously took him into custody. <coughs> and um, news crews were there just in time to ask him three questions. Were you scared? Yes. Would you do it again? No. And then the money question, why'd you do it? Here was his answer. He said, because a man can't just sit around. <laughs> 20,000 feet. man can't just sit around, you know. Here's the deal. Larry got a lot of things wrong that day, but he got that right. A man cannot just sit around. This is especially true for Christians. We cannot just sit around. The Apostle Paul told the Romans this in Romans 12, 11. He said that Christians are to never be lazy, but to work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. That's what we're called to do. Now, Paul, in context, he's not talking about our salvation. You can't work for your salvation. You can't earn a right standing with God. There are not enough old ladies that you can help across the street to earn a right standing with God. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Bible says if we believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if we confess with our mouths that God has raised him from the dead, that's what gets us saved. It's Jesus' work on the cross. The person in the work of Christ, shedding his blood for your sin and mine. That's what makes us right with God. That's what... what Bring, gives us salvation. 
But in the terms of sanctification, being made into the image of God, and in terms of our serving the Lord with how he's created us, this is what Paul is talking about when he says, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Right here in our text, in these first two verses, I want you to notice three things about Jesus' calling of his disciples and how that applies to us. First of all, if you're taking notes, would you note that Jesus called them? Just take note that he called them. See, the Bible makes it clear that God's work of redemption here on earth is a work that Jesus himself does. But listen, God's work of redemption from the very beginning has involved men and women. Think about it. Think about Mary. When, when God the Father, who loved, the, loved the, the world so much that he would give his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. When, when Jesus came, what did, he, what did he do? He did the work involving Mary, right? He came in the likeness of men to begin this work, but he did it through that woman. He involved the shepherds to herald his coming, to to get the the word out that Jesus had come. He involved the shepherds in that work. Here in our text, he's involving the disciples in the work that he wants to do, calling them to himself, commissioning them. We're going to see him give them power and authority. This is God's work, but he's doing it through, through men and women. And the same way, God does this work through us. Luke will go on to write the book of Acts, which is the history of the first church. And in the book of Acts, he says this. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now, the, the operative word there is began. That Jesus began a work, and the implication is, is that his work continues. And we see in the book of Acts how his work continues through his disciples in the first century church. And for you and me, his work continues to this day. The Lord wanting to involve us in his work. Here's what Paul said to the Romans, Romans 12.1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable service. Two key words in that verse, the word sacrifice and the word service. The word sacrifice in the original language, it means the act of an offering. And the word service, again in the original language, means the service of worship. So what you have is Paul saying that we are to participate in an act of an offering. It speaks of worship and it is a service of worship as we serve the Lord with our lives. See, here at Reliance Church, one of our main values is service. We articulate it this way. We say that we we are contributors, we're not consumers. We're contributors, we're not consumers. Why? Well, because Jesus himself was a contributor and not a consumer. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. And so this is what the Bible says that God expects from us. That God expects you and I to be servants of the Lord, serving Him, serving His people. Paul said this to the Ephesians. He said, we are His workmanship. We are His work of art is what that word workmanship. We're His, we're his poem. His poema is the word in the Greek. Work of art, special work, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should operative word there, we should walk in these works that God has prepared for, for us as his workmanship, as his work of art. In other words, there's a uniqueness to your life. There's a uniqueness 
to my life. How God has gifted you, how he's created you, how he's fashioned you, where he's placed you. And so there, there is this implication where God has uniquely and specifically created, gifted, placed you and me and given to us functions and duties that he wants us to do. Paul told the Ephesians, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We think of calling in terms of a religious calling and a pastor gets a calling. No, the implication here, Paul's saying we all are called by God. We all have a calling to do something to worship God. Worship isn't just us singing songs on a Sunday morning. Worship is how we live our lives. This, this is why we, we have uh, you know, our, our time of giving to the Lord as part of our worship service. Because as we, we, we give of, of the, the first fruits of what God has given to us, it's not because God is broke, it's because we're worshiping God with what he's given to us. We're worshiping God with our giving, saying, Lord, I want to be part of building your kingdom. I want to worship you in what you do. <clears throat> so Paul says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on to say this. He says, Jesus gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. He's talking about how he's gifted particular people. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. That's you. My job is to equip you to do the work of ministry, ministering as the Lord has uniquely called and gifted you to do, whether it be to your neighbors or to your friends or in your service, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, my job is to equip you for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, fancy word which means build up, for the building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, that's you, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, put your name in there, uh, causes the growth of the body for the edifying or the building up of itself, of the church, in love. What Paul says is this, he says that Jesus, rather than being a consumer, he came as a contributor. He came as a servant. And having served you and I so wonderfully, so marvelously, so thoroughly, hey, you and I now have a duty ourselves to serve. And even though we are uniquely created, even though we are uniquely gifted with individual talents, hey, those unique gifts are always meant and designed to be contributed to the larger whole of the body of Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. So we see, first of all, that Jesus calls his disciples, just as he also calls us. Secondly, we take note of what it is that Jesus called them to. What did he call them to do? He called them to preach the kingdom of God, and he called them to heal the sick. Preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Now, we need to understand that the healing of the sick was um, incidental to the preaching of the kingdom. In other words, healing was not their primary responsibility here. Their their primary responsibility was to preach the kingdom. Why? 
Well, because physical healing is temporary at best, but spiritual healing is eternal. And, and the idea here is that, yes, God gifted, God called, God empowered, and gave them authority to, to effect healing, but he did so for the purpose of authenticating the message that he had called them to preach. And you can imagine, the apostle shows up, he's like, oh, you know, you, you've got this debilitating lifelong disease. In Jesus' name, be healed. Whoa, I'm healed. Have I got your attention? Because now I've got a message to share with you. And you would say, well, there, that's authenticated. I'll receive your message. By the way, God does, still does, does works of healing uh, today. Uh, he's sovereign. He can do that. That's what God does. Um, he authenticates his message in a lot of ways. Through people who are healed, God authenticates the message that way. Through his prophetic word. A lot of the Bible is prophecy, where God calls his shots ahead of time, thousands of years in advance, says what he's going to do, then he actually does it. Who else can do that? The Bible actually asks the question, who else, you know, God says, who else can tell you what he's going to do before he does it? And, and, And God would say, you know, me, I'm the only one that can do that, you know? And, and so God authenticates his word through prophecy as well. So for the, for the disciples, listen, the, the healing simply served to authenticate their message. But the real power, the true life-altering power, was in the preaching of the word. And again, you and I have this same priority. We have this same calling. We have the same duty. We have the same responsibility to proclaim the gospel, just as Jesus calls his disciples to do here. Jesus, in his great commission, he said this. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And now here's the commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, he promises, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And that brings us to the third thing here to note about Jesus' calling of his disciples. Listen, Jesus gave to them power and authority to do what he'd called them to do. He gave them the calling, yes, but he gave them the power and the authority to fulfill that calling. It's been said, whatever Jesus calls you to do, that he will empower you through. And so Jesus has called them to do this, but he's going to give to them the power and the authority to be able to do this. Now, how is he going to give them the power to do this? How does Jesus empower them? Well, the, the key is noticing that word power in verse 1. When it says he gave them power and authority, <clears throat> well, that word power in the Greek, it's the word dunamis. We get the word dynamite from that power. And it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we see that that power is none other than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and the third person of the Trinity is God the Holy Spirit. And here's what Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, you shall receive power, dunamis, same word here, that he gives his disciples on this commission. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is his power. And it was so important there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that he told the disciples, don't leave Jerusalem until you get this power that I've promised to give you. You need to wait upon me and I will pour out the Holy Spirit upon you. 
Jesus had taught his disciples for three and a half years, like arguably the best trained disciples that have ever lived. And three and a half year graduates of Emmanuel University with the, with the instructor Jesus Christ himself, like nobody's ever had that, right? You, you know, him in the flesh right here, three and a half years, and he says, you're not ready. You need to wait for the power that I'm going to give you in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus gives them power, and I want you to note also, listen, he gives them authority. He gives them authority. Let's take a look at that. Move forward a, a couple of books to uh, Acts chapter 19. <clears throat> we'll be coming back here to Luke chapter 9, but just go to, to Acts chapter 19. We're going to go to verse 11. We're talking about the authority that Jesus gives to his disciples. Calls them to himself, gives them power, yes. Also gives them this authority. <clears throat> Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Tells us that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Pop quiz. Who worked the miracles? God. God worked the miracles. He did them through the hands of Paul, but it's God who worked the miracles. It's important. We'll, we'll get into that more in a minute. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Would you notice there again in verse 11, God worked unusual miracles, okay? Okay. This, this is not Paul's cue to go out and start a 1-800-HEAL-YOU service. You send me fifty nine ninety five, and I'll send you my custom, you know, handkerchief that's going to heal you. Why do I say that? Because there are ministries today that are looking for you to send your money so that they can spend, send you the special hanky that, uh, that this, this, you know, guy, evangelist, whatever he calls himself, charlatan, shyster, a huckster, uh, fraud, has pay, prayed over. He just wants your wallet, man. He just wants your money. It was this event in Acts. It, it's, it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's telling us something that happened, and it was an unusual thing. God did this unusually, but it happened. So Paul had these handkerchiefs, and they would touch him, and then they'd heal people. Like, wow. And, and this is a work of God, just a divine supernatural thing. And then, verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves. That's key. They took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish uh, chief priest, who did so. They go, oh, that's a good idea. We're going to do the same thing. <clears throat> and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who the heck are you? Right? This is, I exercise you by the, by the Jesus that Paul preaches. He's like, oh, I know Jesus. I know Paul. Who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, <coughs> overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That would have been a sight to see. I know Jesus. I know Paul. I don't know you. And now I'm going to open up a can of a whoop on you, and it's, it's done, right? And so this is all that's going down. Now listen, here's, here's the deal. The seven sons of Sceva didn't have the authority over the demons. 
because they weren't disciples of Christ. They didn't have any authority in their life. They were not empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, listen, there are, there are people today in churches across America that are living powerless lives. That, that in a sense, they, they are fleeing in their lives from all of these things just naked and wounded. Why? Because they have no power. They, they're living powerless life. They have no personal relationship with Jesus. Listen, here's the only thing they know. They know the Jesus that my pastor preaches. They know the Jesus that my spouse believes in. They know the, the Jesus that my granny had growing up. And oh man, my granny was a powerful woman of God. Great. They have no power and authority in their own lives. Maybe today you have no power or authority over what you're going through. Maybe you feel like these seven sons of Sceva where you've been beaten and wounded and now it's just, you know, wretched, miserable, naked, poor. Like my life is just, I'm, I, I don't, I'm just no power, no authority. Well, maybe it's because you need Jesus. You need to cry out and, and make him your Lord and your Savior. The Bible says, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And you can have a do-over today. You can be made clean. You can be made right. You can be made whole because you can receive Jesus. And he's not the Jesus that my pastor preaches. He's not the Jesus that my granny talked talk to me about. He's not even the Jesus of my buddy. He's my Jesus. He's my Lord. And he's given me power. And he's given me authority. You can have that today. And so Jesus calls his disciples and he commissions his disciples and he imparts this power and authority in their lives. And he said to them, verse 3, back in Luke chapter 9, would help. He said to them in verse 3, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, the Talmud, which which is uh, the the thing that governed Jewish civil and ceremonial law, the Talmud said this. The Talmud stipulated that no one was to go to the temple mount with staff with shoes, uh, with girdle of money, or with dusty feet. Here's why. The idea was that when you went up to the temple, you're going to worship God. And as you go to the temple, that you know you have to make it clear that you've left everything to do with trade, everything to do with business, everything to do with worldly affairs. You've left that all behind. Why? Because this is a spiritual encounter with God. Right? And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples here is, look, what I'm sending you out on is a holy mission. It's not going to be your trade. It's not going to be your business. It's not going to be something that's got the world's fingerprints on it. It is going to be a divinely supernatural, holy thing. And so I don't want you to, to bring that, that stuff with you. As well, Jesus says, look, if you go out and you bring the gospel, that's their mission, go bring the gospel to the unsaved world, people that desperately need to know that there's a God who loves them and who has made a way for them to be right with him through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And, G- and so he, he says, as you're doing that, look, some people are going to reject you. That's just how it's going to go. 
That's what he says. And he says, if you encounter those people that reject you, you're going to shake off the dust. And the shaking off the dust basically symbolizes that, look, that's not on me, that's on you. Like, I, I, you're responsible, the hearers are responsible for the message. You know, sometimes uh, I'll give an invitation, and, uh, and there's no response. People will, you know, I, 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 at the end of a message, I'll, I'll uh, try and feed you with a fire hose and get through this fast today so that at the end of the message I can give you an invitation. Maybe you're here, you need Christ, you need, a, you need to be made new. And, and that's a work of the Holy Spirit to do. My job is just to, to deliver the mail. So if I give an invitation, sometimes nobody raises their hand. And people go, you know, well, gosh, is that awkward? Is that weird? No, because it's not on me. It's on you. My job is just to deliver the mail. It's your responsibility to, to hear from a holy God and to exercise the sovereign authority that he's given to you. He's created you in his image. Part of that means is that you have a sovereign will. You can choose to accept. You can choose to reject. But listen, the Lord... He's maybe knocking at the door of your heart. Maybe, maybe just even now speaking to you saying, I'm the one that died for you. And, and you know that you need me. Your life's a train wreck. And you need a do-over. You need to be cleansed. You need to be forgiven. You need your guilt completely washed away. And the only one that can do that is Jesus. And so this shaking off the dust is just this symbol of saying, look, this isn't on me, it's on you. Paul said this in in Acts chapter 8. Well, we read this about Paul in Acts chapter 18. It says, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, um, Paul was compelled by the Spirit, and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments, and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. See, Paul's just, he gets it. Hey, this is on you, man. I'm giving, you the, I'm giving you the information. It's your responsibility. This is up to you. Now, something else to notice about Jesus' instructions here to his disciples as he sends them out, <clears throat> not only does he tell them, you know, travel light, not only does he tell them about the shaking off of the, of the, the dust if they, people reject and so on, but the idea here is that traveling light also kept them dependent upon God. Jesus is saying, hey, don't waste a lot of time. This thing is urgent. Get to it. Go out. Don't worry about packing a bag. I'm going to take care of everything that you need. And here's the idea. In other words, if they don't take much with them by way of possessions, by way of substance and sustenance, well, then they have to trust the Lord for everything. You see, I like what David Guzik said about this. He says, if the preacher himself doesn't trust God, how can he tell others to trust him? Right? And so this is the idea. Jesus said, trust me as you go. And as you're asking people to trust in the Lord, I'm, I'm going to provide for you. The Apostle Paul said that we're to rely on Jesus and we're to put no confidence in our human efforts. He said, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So we're to rely upon the Lord. This, by the way, this is why this attitude of relying on the Lord is why I named our church Reliance Church. When I started this church, this is a true story. When I started this church, I had more money in the ashtray of my truck than we had in our bank account as a church. That's a true story. And, and we're like, we, we, we don't have nothing, man. If God don't show up, we are sunk on this venture of faith. And absolutely a venture of faith. Here we are 11 years later can't believe. I mean, I can, but it's just shocking 
that we're about to move into a building that God has provided for us. 11 years ago, thank you, Lord Jesus. So, so, so Jesus is just saying, hey, go out and rely on me. Now, having said that, some take Jesus' instructions here, and I just want to do a little housekeeping on this. Some people take Jesus' instructions here in Luke chapter 9, and they, they build a whole you know, dogma around it, and they, a whole philosophy of ministry. They basically say that ministry should have no bank accounts and no budgets and no buildings, you know, because this is how Jesus sent them out. But listen, understand these instructions that Jesus gave his disciples here, they're specific to this time and, and to this mission. And how can I authoritatively say that? Well, if you get to the end of Luke's gospel, you're going to see that Jesus, as he's passing the baton to these same disciples, he gives them very different instructions. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says there, he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? Now, clearly he's talking about this event. So he says, hey, you remember that time I sent you guys out with nothing? Did you lack anything? And what do they say? They said, nothing. We didn't lack anything. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. In other words, what he's saying there is, look, you're going to need budgets. You're going to need buildings. You're going to need bank accounts. See, it's, it's, it, it's different times and it's just different situations. And they just call for different measures. And so verse 6, they departed and they went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And, and, and by the way, let me just say it, they were obedient right there. We, we should not take for granted that people are just automatically obedient. This is something that we need to, to, to just observe and note. This isn't in my notes, but this is something that we got to go, wow, they were obedient immediately and they saw fruitful fruitfulness from their obedience and the question has to be asked are we being obedient because God has called you he has commissioned you he has given to you if you're a child of God power and authority to do the things that we've been talking about the question is are you are you being faithful to him so they departed preaching the gospel healing everywhere they're seeing what God is doing now Herod verse 7 the tetrarch heard of all that was done by him by Jesus and he was perplexed uh, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. This is Herod Antipas. He's the, the uh, son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the guy that killed all the firstborn uh, when he was trying to find Jesus. You know, that just a lovely dad to have, you know. And uh, Herod Antipas was the guy that had imprisoned John the Baptist earlier in Luke's gospel. We read about him. Had him beheaded, right? This is, this is that same Herod. He, he's, he's, uh, he's the king. And so... Uh, the word, he's perplexed because he's told, hey, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. That's, that's what he's told. And verse 8, and he's also told by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And so he sought to see him. And so clearly the disciples have done such a good job of sharing the gospel that it gets all the way to King Herod. And now he says, oh, wow, I want to see Jesus. Now that sounds like a good thing. You know, hey, my job is to preach the gospel, the good news. And now you've got somebody who's interested. But Herod is only interested out of curiosity's sake. And we learn that 
uh, because when Jesus uh, ultimately was going to be crucified, Herod's one of the ones that he was sent to, and Herod was just interested, the Bible tells us, in Jesus working a miracle. He just wanted to see, you know, the lights and the big drums and the show and all of that. He had no desire of making Jesus his Lord and Savior, and so when, he, when Jesus appeared before him, Jesus wouldn't even talk to him, didn't even say a word to this guy. And it's going to be that way. Sometimes you go out and you, and, you know, hey, God's called me to share my faith. And it's just, you know, somebody's curious, but they really are not interested in any life transformation. That's the case here. Sometimes it is that way. Verse 10, and the apostles, when they had returned, so they went out, had, had lots of success. When they'd returned, they told him, Jesus, all that they had done. Let me ask you a question. Who did it? Jesus did the work. They got to be a part of it, but it was Jesus doing the work. And Jesus is going to make that point to them. He needs them to get it. Look, this ain't about you, you know. And so, so they told him all that they had done. And then he took them and they went away privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Mark's gospel gives us the additional information that he took them there with the promise that they're going to get a break, that they're going to get rest. Uh, that's key. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. By the way, Mark's gospel also tells us that they, they went away. They, he took them in a boat and they went across the Sea of Galilee. And it says, when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who had need of anything. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus went on a boat to the other side. These guys all ran around the lake because it's a lake. So they're just cutting a corner, going from one side to the other. All these people see where they're going. They run around the, the lake and they're there on the other side. Now, these disciples, they're thinking, oh, we're getting a break. This is cool. I need a break. I, I, I'm weary. I get a rest. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's what about Bob? And they get to the other side, and there's the, the, all, the, you know, all the people on the other side. Dr. Leo Marvin, like, hey, you know. And, he, and, he's, and they're like, oh, you guys again? Like, can we get away from you? Can we get a break, for, you know, for crying out loud? And it says that Jesus, Mark's gospel tells us, he had compassion on them because he saw him as sheep without a shepherd. And, and, and so, um, and so the, there they, they were, this goes down, um, and um, when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, uh, and Jesus healed uh, anybody there. Verse 12, when the day began to wear away, the twelve came and they said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. Um, don't you love how they couch uh, their desires spiritually? It's like, send them away. Hey, they're hungry. They need to be taken care of. Send them away, you know. Uh, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all of these people. And again, another gospel, I'm pretty sure it's Mark's gospel, adds the detail that they basically, somebody in their group did the math and said it would take six months' wages to feed all these people. <clears throat> For, verse 14 says, there were about 5,000 men, which tells us you had women to the mix and you had maybe kids to the mix. There's like maybe 15,000 people here. And Jesus is saying, you feed these 15,000 people. And then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50, and they did so. And made them all sit down. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish. And again, I think it's Mark's gospel that adds the detail. 
that uh, the five loaves and two fish came from some kid who, who had his lunch packed by mama. And that's, that's you know, what was there. And did, none of this is in my notes, but let me just add this just as a, as a quick freebie. Here you go. Um, Jesus does this incredible thing with, with what this kid has to offer. Moms and dads, don't you for a second think that when you spend time pouring into your kids, that God won't take that and do things that will absolutely blow your mind. Don't grow weary in doing good, the Bible says, for in due season we'll reap if we don't lose heart. And I think maybe that's a word of the Lord for some of, for some of you just getting to the end of your wick with your kid. Just going, I'm about to go into the prison ministry because one of us needs to die. <laughs> and you just go, man, you know what? I mean, look what Jesus does with this. This is just this incredible thing. He takes this kid's lunch and he blessed it and he broke it. Uh, he took them, he, he looked up to heaven, he blessed and he broke them, verse 16, and came to them, the disciples set bef- uh, uh, gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude, and so they all ate, and they were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. By the way, this isn't 12 baskets of leftovers like, you know, I took a few bites off my fish and I don't want any more and I throw it in there. Or, oh, this is the yucky part of the fish. I don't want that. And I put, that's not the leftovers. This, this is part of what is being served. This is, this is good food that is prepared that wasn't, that wasn't eaten because we've already served everybody, but we still have all of this. One, the same food that they ate, the same wonderful offering, is now there's 12 baskets full. You do the math. How many disciples you got? You have 12 disciples. The Lord's saying here, as you take care of the people, I'll take care of you. And so, so this beautiful thing, and, and, and they're taken up by them. And so um, what we have here is we've got this incredible picture where <clears throat> Jesus has called and commissioned the disciples, but now what he's doing is he's coaching the disciples, just as he will do with us. He calls you, he commissions you, and listen, now he's coaching them. And there's a couple of ways I want to point out that Jesus coaches them here in our text, and I'm going to move through quickly. First of all, he's coaching them in their compassion. It's just like I talked about, you know, serving Jesus can be exhausting. It can. Listen, there's always work that needs to be done. There's always tasks that need doing. There's people that need shepherding, and it ain't always convenient. It's just not. How many of you have, have babies at home? Can I see a show of hands? Anybody got a baby at home right now? D- does your baby always, is it always convenient when they need you? Do, do, do they say, hey mom, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, would you change my diaper right now? <laughs> Dad, if, if, if it's not too, too much trouble, can you get me a bottle? No, it's three o'clock in the morning. They're like, now, let's go, you know. <laughs> And do you tell the kid, do you say, I'm off the clock, dude, suck it up? <laughs> no, what do you do? You care for the child. Why? Because you love them, right? And, and so the, the, this is the, the, the idea. We, we, we minister and we have compassion and it comes from a place of love. And this is the way it is in God's family. John said this, John the Apostle in 1 John 4, 19, he said, we love because God first loved us. Uh, he says this in First John 4, 7. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And see, so having received God's love, we're now called to be distributors of God's love. 
John says this. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? James puts it more bluntly in, uh, in James chapter 2. He says, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing, what good does that do? He says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. So this is our responsibility. Huge lessons for Christians here is that service is founded upon sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. It doesn't always conveniently fit into our schedule. It's not always convenient to minister to people. And sometimes we think if it's difficult or if it's inconvenient, it's not of God. No, absolutely not the case. Sometimes it's precisely of God. You know, think about uh, Peter, Luke chapter 5. He'd fished all night, caught nothing. He's washing all his gear. He's thinking about bed. And Jesus says, hey, put out a little bit from the shore. Oh, man, sacrifice, service. But he served the Lord. And in that instance, as well as this instance, what happens? The sacrifice is followed by this miracle. That's what we see. Sacrifice followed by a miracle. And who gets to see it? The servants, those that sacrifice. They get to see the miracle. Peter gets to see the miracle of the filling up of the fish in Luke chapter 5. Now all the disciples get to see the miracle of 5,000 plus men or plus women plus children fed by five, you know, five fish and two loaves. Like, it's like, wow, crazy thing. But it requires sacrificial participation. So Jesus coaches them in their compassion. But the second thing that Jesus does here is he coaches them in their capabilities. Coaches them in their capabilities. Why? Well, because they came back saying, look at, we won't tell you everything that we did. And yes, they did. And praise the Lord. And that's awesome. But Jesus wants them to remember, it's me who does the work. So he gives them this impossible task. Let's go over the other side. You feed them. See, because they could come back and they could believe all their own press clippings and go, it's awesome. We went out forgetting it's the power and the authority of God that had been given to them by Jesus. So they come back talking about everything that happened, and Jesus goes, okay, that's great. Just don't forget how you're operating. Don't forget that you're operating in the power and the authority of God. So here in this situation, go feed these people. Why? We can't do it. It would take six months of work. Like, what are they doing? There's a subtle shift. They're thinking about their own capabilities. And Jesus goes, look, it's not about you. When you serve, it's not about your own capabilities. It's about my capabilities, about my power. And so that's what he wants them to get. Now, now, I'll make this point in 30 seconds and we'll be done. It happened in verse 18 that he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them saying, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered and they said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others say one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and he said, you are the Christ of God. We can spend a lot of time on that, but we don't need to because it's still the exclamation point on the end of this lesson. Jesus is God. And he divinely, supernaturally calls you and I to serve him, to step out and minister, to be faithful, to do so sacrificially, and to watch for the miracles that only God can do. And listen, when he does those miracles, let's make sure that he's the one that gets the praise, the glory, the honor, the credit. Amen.